Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida of Japan is currently grappling with a financial scandal that has hit his Liberal Democratic Party. Abby, this is being called the biggest scandal in over three decades. What's your take on this? Indeed, Michael. This scandal could severely impact Kishida's political career. There are even talks about him firing four of his cabinet ministers who are accused of concealing income from fundraising events. And it's not just the firings, right? This scandal is drawing comparisons to the recruit affair from the late 1980s, where allegations of insider trading led to then-Prime Minister Noboru Takashida's resignation and an upper house election defeat. Exactly. And this scandal isn't just affecting the cabinet. It's also threatening Kishida's policy program. He's trying to implement measures to protect voters from inflation and fund the largest defense expansion since World War II. But with this scandal, all of that could be in jeopardy. And these allegations are not just affecting Kishida's policies, but his popularity as well. He's already the least popular premier in more than a decade, and this scandal has only worsened his standing. There's even speculation that he could step down as early as spring, which would open the door for another LDP lawmaker to take over, right? And it's not just Kishida's position that's at stake. The four ministers set to be replaced include Chief Cabinet Secretary Hirokazu Matsuno and Trade Minister Yasutoshi Nishimura. And it's not just the ministers. Two party officials are reported to be set to resign, and the head of the LDP's Policy Research Council, Koichi Hagyuda, is also set to resign. This could delay deliberations on next year's budget. This is indeed a crisis situation, as Natsuo Yamaguchi, the head of Kishida's coalition partner party, Komeito, has said. The political funding problem needs to be dealt with decisively, and then the government needs to think about how to start over again from fundamentals. And while this scandal is certainly a major issue, it's also important to note that it's unlikely to result in major changes in direction. Christy Govella, director of the Center for Indo-Pacific Affairs at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, said that Kishida's focus might shift more towards domestic issues. That's true. And it's not just Kishida's faction that's under scrutiny. Other factions, including Kishida's own, are facing similar allegations over slush funds. However, prosecutors are targeting the Abe group because its actions were systematic and involved larger amounts of money. And the amount of money we're talking about here is not small. The Abe faction's slush fund may amount to as much as 1 billion yen, or $6.9 million. That's a significant sum, and it's no wonder that this scandal is causing such a stir. Absolutely. And if Kishida does step down, it's unlikely that Abe faction lawmakers will be in the running to replace him, especially given that some members are already seen as tainted by their links to the fringe religious group formerly known as the Unification Church. It's a complex situation, and it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds in the coming weeks and months. From one political crisis to another, let's shift our focus from Japan to Eastern Europe. The ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia is seeing some significant developments. Let's dive into these latest updates, shall we? So, Abby, let's dive into the latest developments in the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia. President Biden's recent pledge to provide Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can is a significant shift in language, isn't it? Indeed, Michael. 
It's a subtle yet important change from his previous stance of support as long as it takes. It seems to reflect the harsh reality that American backing isn't an open-ended commitment. And the situation in Ukraine is becoming increasingly daunting, yes. Especially with the fading prospect of aid from Capitol Hill and the onset of winter. It's interesting to see how both the U.S. and Ukraine are recognizing the need for a change in strategy. Absolutely. Ukrainian officials have been seeking more interaction with senior U.S. military officials, acknowledging that something has to change. In response, the U.S. is now allowing General Antonio Aguto, who leads the Security Assistance Group Ukraine, to spend more time in Ukraine advising their forces. That's a major shift in stance, considering the previous reluctance to have senior military officials in Ukraine for extended periods. It seems to indicate a belief that Aguto's presence could facilitate better intelligence sharing and wargaming between the U.S. and Ukraine. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? On one hand, there's the need to avoid being perceived by Russia as manipulating Ukraine's operations. On the other hand, there's the necessity to assist Ukraine in its war efforts. And then there's the disagreements on where to focus the war efforts. Exactly. The U.S. has been advocating for a focus on the South, while Zelensky and his advisors have been insistent on the East. It's a complex situation, further complicated by Ukraine's delay in launching a counteroffensive, allowing Russia to fortify its defensive lines. And then there's the hold and build strategy that the U.S. has discussed with Ukraine. It's about focusing on holding the territory they already control and fortifying it to the point that Russia can't forcibly take it. But it's not a long-term solution, considering Russia's ability to replenish their ranks and rearm. Right. It's a temporary fix at best. Shifting our focus to Zelensky's visit to Washington, it appears he was met with a different reception compared to his visit a year ago. The warm, bipartisan welcome has been replaced by opposition from Republicans who are demanding tougher immigration rules before approving new aid. And that's a deadlock Zelensky has no control over. It's an immigration issue that's entirely out of his hands. Even though he met with lawmakers, he didn't take a stance on the matter. Despite the deadlock, Biden still tried to encourage Zelensky, urging him not to lose hope. But it's clear that Zelensky's in-person appeals no longer carry the same weight they used to. It's a complex situation, Michael. There's the reality of Ukraine's struggle to push Russia out of its territory, the political deadlock in Washington, and the first real strains in national unity within Ukraine. It's a critical time for Zelensky and Ukraine. And it underscores the importance of Biden's call to Congress to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine. As he put it, Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. It's clear that the stakes are high and the world is watching. The next moves from all parties involved will be crucial in shaping the future of Ukraine. Speaking of critical times and high stakes, let's shift from the international stage to the broader challenges faced by President Biden. These include not just the geopolitical chess game in Ukraine, but also a myriad of issues on both the domestic and foreign fronts. The essence of his presidency seems to be about standing up for democracy, but the journey has been anything but smooth. Let's dive into these complexities now. Abby, let's dive into the complex world of President Biden's challenges on both domestic and foreign fronts. His presidency has been about standing up for democracy, hasn't it? 
Indeed, Michael, from defending democracy at home against Trump's election sidesteps to standing up against Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But it's not been a smooth ride. Absolutely. The frustrations are cascading, aren't they? On one hand, we have Ukrainian President Zelensky failing to secure further U.S. aid despite personal appeals. Then there's Biden's own call to Israel to change its severe campaign against Gaza. And let's not forget the home front. House Speaker Mike Johnson supports Ukraine's fight against Putin, but wants something in return for the $61 billion to keep the fight going. This is creating a standoff that's tying up funding for Israel and border security. Right. And Biden's been clear about the implications. He said failing to pass the funding would be the greatest Christmas gift for Putin. But House Republicans are demanding changes in border policy in exchange. They want to reduce asylum seekers and cut down on people crossing the border. And they're not happy with what they see as a lack of oversight and clear strategy from the Biden administration. And then there's the international front. Putin's been at the top of Russian politics for two decades and he's effectively used Russia's justice system to send political rivals to prison. This is the autocracy Biden's been warning about. Meanwhile, back home, the justice system is slowly working to hold Trump accountable for his efforts to undo the 2020 election. And Republicans are trying to create an equivalence between those alleged crimes and Hunter Biden's issues with taxes. It's a whirlwind of political maneuvering, isn't it? And now Republicans are moving to formalize an impeachment inquiry against Biden, aiming to force more cooperation from the White House. It's a lot to digest, Michael. But as we know, the ultimate Democratic test for Biden, Trump, and House Republicans will come in about a year when voters have their say. It's going to be an interesting ride. While we continue to navigate these complex political landscapes, let's shift our focus to an incident that recently took place in the Parliament of Poland a situation that has raised some serious concerns about the state of religious tolerance and respect. A symbolic act has sparked a heated debate and highlighted the underlying tensions within the country. Let's turn our attention to an incident that occurred in Poland's parliament in Warsaw. A right-wing lawmaker extinguished the candles of a menorah that had been lit in celebration of Hanukkah. Abby, what's your take on this? It's certainly a concerning incident, Michael. The lawmaker, Braun, has been a member of parliament since 2019, and his actions have intensified the strain in the country's parliament. This comes at a time when there's already tension between the goals of the newly elected Tusk and the Law and Justice Party. That's right. Braun's act not only highlights these tensions, but also the broader global tensions since the Israel-Gaza war began. It's a distressing reflection of the rise in anti-Semitic sentiments we've seen over the last decade, particularly among populist right-wing political forces. It's a troubling trend indeed, and it doesn't stop at Braun's actions. He has previously marched in protest of Poland providing compensation for Jewish Holocaust survivors and their families, and he's even propagated conspiracy theories about Poland becoming a Jewish state. His actions have been widely condemned, from the Speaker of the Parliament, Szymon Halawnia, to Cardinal Grzegorz Resch of Poland's Catholic Church. Even the U.S. Ambassador to Poland, Mark Brzezinski, has called it an outrageous act. And rightly so. Anti-Semitism has no place in our society. It's important to note that incidents like these are not isolated. 
They're part of a larger pattern of hate and intolerance that we're seeing across the globe. Just last month, there was a firebombing of a synagogue in Berlin, and a teenager in Austria was arrested for allegedly planning to attack a synagogue in Vienna. Absolutely. And it's not just in Europe. Here in the U.S., there have been several acts of vandalism involving menorahs, including in Maryland and near Yale University's campus in Connecticut. It's a stark reminder of the challenges Jewish communities are facing. Yes, but let's also highlight the resilience of these communities. Poland's chief rabbi, Michael Shudrich, for instance, said that the candles Braun put out were relit within minutes. He said, our enemies should learn. They cannot extinguish us. A powerful statement indeed. And it underscores the importance of standing up against hate and intolerance, no matter where it comes from. Abby, any thoughts on how we can foster a more inclusive and respectful society? Well, Michael, it starts with education and awareness. We need to understand and respect our differences, and we need to call out hate when we see it. It's also important to remember that these acts of hate are not representative of everyone. There are many people, communities, and leaders who are actively working against such intolerance. 